I'm Rashma Sajani, the founder and CEO of Girls Who Code. Welcome to Brave, Not Perfect. On this podcast, I talk with up and coming change makers who are leaving their fear of failure behind and letting bravery lead the way. You'll hear from incredible people who are using their skills and talents to make a difference in their community. And I'll ask them about the moments where they decided to be brave, not perfect. This week, I'm talking with Rebecca Traster, who I am obsessed with. She's the author of the new book, Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. Rebecca is the columnist for New York Magazine. Anytime there's an issue that affects women's lives and our right to exist, there's probably a Rebecca Traster column you should read about it. So you've written about the power of single women, the sexist dynamic underlying the candidacy of Hillary Clinton, and now about women's anger. What inspired kind of the passion for writing about like really uncomfortable topics? Well, they're uncomfortable, sure, but they're the stuff that fascinates me. So it's actually not uncomfortable for me to write about them. I think the thing that inspires me to write about these subjects is a real desire to excavate a lot of the history and the story that we're in the midst of. So like a lot of people... I'm very anxious to make sense of what we're living through. So right now, and for the past couple of years, a lot of this is, people will hear this and it'll be like, right, the Trump administration, the upheaval that we're going through, the Me Too, the teacher strikes, the Women's March, the fact that I'm at protests every weekend, or my mother is in Indivisible in you know rural Pennsylvania, or whatever it is that feels like is a sudden change in American life. And I think that there are certain communities for whom that change feels really sudden. And certain communities who've been experiencing a lot of these challenges for a very long time without the kind of spotlight and curiosity about what's behind it. But my desire as a writer is to connect dots tease out the narrative and the story and trying to figure out what's happening now and what relationship it has to what's happened in the past and what we need to be aware of based on what we know about the past and the interconnectedness of some of these stories and some of these struggles and trying to imagine what we can expect as we move forward. Yeah. I mean, it was so hard for me. I had spent months on the road for Hillary. And when I was sitting there at the Javits Center, I was so angry because I thought my first thought was like, people just didn't do enough. You know, a few days later, I was one of the organizers of the Women's March. A couple of us started coming together and thinking about it. And I was actually one of the few women that were involved. Uh, There's probably three of us that were Hillary people, right? Mm -hmm. Because these were actually people who had in some ways sat on the sidelines, right? And then you saw this flood of people who felt guilty. It awoken something in them, right? Right. That they thought she was going to win, that she was the most qualified. And so do you think that it was Hillary's loss that sparked this? I think there are so many different ways into what we're seeing now. And it goes way back from, I mean, it goes way, way back. But in the sort of recent past, a lot of this starts in places that are in advance of the 2016 election. So it starts with Occupy Wall Street and Black Lives Matter and the sort of agitations of people who even in the midst of an Obama administration in which so much of the message that was sent to us was that the struggles around inequality were things of our past. And that's a key part you say when you think about what you were thinking of in the Javits Center is that people didn't do enough. And then you talk about planning the Women's March and some of the people were people who had sat out or who thought she was just going to win. That's not accidental that people sat out, didn't do enough and thought she was going to win. And this is one of the things that's in the book is my struggle to sort of make sense of this and lay it out. 
the false narrative that these things, essentially things to be angry about, inequality, gendered inequality, racial inequality, economic inequality, were things that are no longer worth being angry about. Those messages are very strong. As a country, the bigger messages that were sent are always about, we fixed everything. There's nothing really to be angry about anymore. If you were somebody who was really angry on behalf of Hillary Clinton in advance of her loss, you were a Hillbot. Yeah. There was a version of the Hillary fan that was like a fangirl, a kind of feather brain, like Hillary supporting girl who was fundamentally not taken seriously. And if she was talking about sexism, was regularly told that in fact, that was not in play here. Hillary was the one with the power. So part of what we're seeing here and part of what Donald Trump's victory and Hillary Clinton's loss and Bernie Sanders' campaign and Bernie's loss and like all these things that happen sort of within a year of each other at the end of the Barack Obama administration really exploded this notion that there was no valid reason for anger. A lot of stuff was made manifestly clear to people and the fury at what had been made manifestly clear overrode the broader messaging, which is that to be angry about this stuff, especially women, is to be fundamentally irrational. And it's like, fuck it, I'm now angry. I've just seen it. The reason that people thought that Hillary was going to win and that they didn't have to get angry on her behalf and that, in fact, if they did, it would be kind of silly and performed and borrowed outrage from another era, part of that was on purpose. A power structure didn't want to acknowledge that gender inequity was going to have an impact on the election. And to talk about this, by the way, even now you have to say, it's not the only reason she lost, but that's part of it, right? And we still want her to go away, right? right. Her very presence still makes a lot of people feel uncomfortable, that she's still in the conversation. Absolutely, absolutely. And so I want to be really explicit when I talk about the kind of sexism that plagued the Clinton campaign and that contributed alongside explicit racism and calls to racist and xenophobic rhetoric that the Trump campaign played on, right? The Trump campaign, it's not just about Hillary losing. It's also about Donald Trump winning with a campaign and on a platform that was extremely explicit about its misogyny, its racism, its xenophobia, right? So regardless, in some senses, of how you felt about Hillary and whether you still want to have a fight about whether or not sexism contributed to her loss, I think that to a degree it's fairly inarguable that the guy who is now our president is a man who ran on explicit expressions of misogyny, racism, and xenophobia. And he still does. I mean, every time something happens to distract people, he starts chanting, lock her up. There was a period, in fact, where part of this fable that had been pushed on us was that an expression of true misogyny, calling women pigs or disgusting or calling Mexicans rapists, that would be disqualifying, right? He'd have to get over that. And you can see that in the coverage of the Trump campaign, that the punditry would, and political writers would say, well, he's got to get past this. And it's been a long time at this point, and I think it's time that we can finally acknowledge that this is not a matter of him winning in spite of those slip-ups, that in fact, racism and sexism are not disqualifying in this country. And it was a false narrative that they were going to be disqualifying for Donald Trump. They are part of what he won on. You know, what I loved about Good and Mad is it put to words how I am like really struggling with the role that white women play in this conversation. Because you can almost expect that men have a certain position, right? Because they want to maintain their power. But the fact that women have become apologists 
And often the ones, especially in the kind of post Me Too movement, you see this in the Kavanaugh hearings right now, are saying, oh, but wait a minute. Don't we need to have, you know, a hearing, right? Don't we need to make sure that it's actually true? Can you talk about that more, about this kind of protecting of male power? It's not recently that white women have become apologists for white male power. And in fact, one of the things we have to look at is we're not just talking about patriarchy in this country. We're talking about a white capitalist patriarchy, right? We're talking about white patriarchy, white supremacy. It was white men who harnessed the power from the beginning. In their revolutionary struggle, they wrote out people who were not white and not male from our founding building blocks, our documents, our constitution, the enfranchisement. They built the courts, the rules, the laws, the businesses, the banks, the money, the roads around white masculinity. So we can never totally separate patriarchy from racism because it's sewn into the fabric of the country. To that end, it has always been true that we're living in a country where a minority white man rules and has power over a majority, a fundamentally subjugated majority. Now, theoretically, that majority would have the power to rise up in rebellion against that minority. But how do you keep a majority from rising up is you discourage dissent and you divide that majority against itself. And how do you divide the majority against itself? In part by extending benefits to segments of that majority. So to men of all races and classes are extended some of the benefits of patriarchy, sexual power, economic power, social power over women. To white women, who of course are most intimately proximate to white men who have so much power, is extended white supremacy. And that has social economic benefits. White women are very often dependent on the power of white men and therefore are incentivized to protect it and to defend it. It's white women who were sort of the foot soldiers of the segregation movement. It's white women who are pictured yelling at black students trying to integrate schools. Yeah. It is white women whose claims that they have in some way been assaulted or bothered by men of color is used as the excuse for racial violence, including lynching. It's interesting that we have been so focused on 53% of white women voting for Donald Trump in 2016, and that many of my colleagues in the political media still express surprise over this. Oh my God, 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump. Here's the thing. White women have always voted for Republicans. There are only two elections since they've kept track, which is 1952, that white women have voted for Democrats. There are only two. 1992, when they voted for Bill Clinton, and I should note here that that is the year that Bill Clinton, as he was running for president, left the campaign trail to execute Ricky Ray Rector, a black man in Arkansas, and that he had his sister soldier moment. In his tough-on-crime, he was coming as a prosecutor and sending messages to white Democrats that were very racialized and offering a kind of comfort to white people. And he won white women. And then in 96, 8% of white women, I believe, went for Ross Perot, but more of them went for Democrats than Republicans. So those were the two years. Otherwise, white women vote Republican. People say they're voting against their best interests, which if you're looking at reproductive autonomy, the the, the equal pay, pay, paid leave protections, subsidized daycare, all the kinds of policies that from which they would benefit. It's true, they're voting against their own interests, but they are voting for their own white supremacist interests in voting for a party that wants to uphold white supremacy from which these women benefit. So are they just not angry enough? So that's a really complicated question because one of the things that we are seeing happening, and it's precarious, right? I don't want to like overextend the hopefulness on this front (laughs) because persuading white women that not only are they fundamentally oppressed, even as they benefit from white patriarchy, even as they enjoy proximal power, 
It is also true they are oppressed. They are made dependent on those white men. They experience sexual harassment, assault, rape. Their bodies are not their own. They're paid less. They don't. All of these things are true, even within a white supremacy. And there are other moments where white women have been convinced of this. The second wave, the feminism of the 1970s, is a moment in which arguments about gender parity that, by the way, women of color had been making for a long time. There was a moment when white women, after the post-war baby boom, and I read about this quite a bit in All the Single Ladies, where white women who had won entry into colleges and graduate schools in some professions at the beginning of the 20th century, and then during the wars when they were called onto factory floors, were pushed out of workplaces and colleges and encouraged to start marrying really young and being at home. And the government subsidized all kinds of infrastructure investments and everything that created white suburbs in which white middle class women enjoyed housing benefits, economic benefits, but in turn for entering into marriages that were very confining, in which they were not expected to be in any kind of public or educational or economically, uh, any kind of earning sphere. In response to that, the, the way in which white women were enclosed, and by the way, separated from black women literally into suburbs, <laughs> there was a wave of anger that came, starting sort of for white women in the 1960s with the publication of The Feminine Mystique, and that blossomed eventually into what would become the second wave women's movement, where there were a tremendous number of legal reforms around marriage and employment and discrimination laws that we know of as the feminist movement. But then those white women are persuaded basically to go back to sleep. And it's white women who persuade other white women to go back to sleep, and that's Phyllis Schlafly. So so white women have always been in the position of defending white patriarchy. And the moments where it is made discernible to them that they have something to be angry about, we are living in a moment where you can see the outlines of this. Because who got beaten for the presidency? A white woman. Yeah. Right? So all this stuff about, oh, white women didn't even vote for Hillary Clinton. Right. But then they saw that she could get beat. And then they were like, not, I'm not happy. So you and think that the was, there was an identification. And then they could see that thing that they were told, like, we're beyond, you know, look, how Hillary Clinton's going to be the president. It's inevitable. The popular message about her was that there's no stopping her. Sexism wouldn't have anything to do with it. But then they watch how an incompetent, multiply accused sexual predator with no experience, who's an idiot, who she beats soundly in all the debates, can nonetheless get the job. It's like a very nine to five, like yeah. 80s movie. Yeah. Like he gets the, the incompetent. Yeah. The, the jerk that gets a promotion. Jerk gets right. the, even right. if they didn't particularly like her, they didn't, like they were like, whoa, that is some right. inequity. And black women have seen this happen all the time. Of course. So they were on board black women have never been. Not when on board. Black, <laughs> black women have never been not on board. And black women have never, they see it every day in their lives. And guess what? They don't even get to be the nominees, yeah. right? The first black woman wasn't elected to the United States Senate until 1982. So have they learned right? their lesson? Next so presidential race. They, so that's, a, that's an information point. And that's a lot of why you then see them the next day, white women being like, we're going to have a march, which of course is problematic because you have women of color being like, oh, now you're going to have a march. Right. Great. Okay. One of the next things, one of the next big waves that happens in these past two years, Me Too, it starts with the story of Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. Who are Harvey Weinstein's most prominent victims? White women. They are powerful, wealthy white women. And like Hillary Clinton, it was the kind of thing that could make discernible to exactly the population that is insulated in some ways or perceives itself as... And, and experiences certain kinds of power and privilege that make them historically not easily able to see or interested in seeing the ways that their oppression is linked to the oppression of other people with less privilege and less power. But these things, the, the loss of Hillary Clinton and the revelation that even these powerful white women may have been physically assaulted, may have 
seen their careers derailed, how common it was, that's part of what makes it, and, and I hate to use the term like permission, but it sort of opens some white women's eyes. It's an awakening. And this thing that they've been told, which is you have nothing to complain about anymore, even if they themselves like feel like they haven't gotten a promotion at work or that they do more of the work at home and their husband doesn't or they should have paid leave or you know their wages should be equal or whatever, even if they've had those complaints, mostly what popular culture has told them up until this moment is you have nothing to complain about. Look, Sheryl Sandberg's running Facebook and Beyonce's at the VMAs. Like there's like women are powerful and Hillary's going to be the president. And so it's kind of a shaking loose of like, wait a minute, this thing I've been told that there's gender parity, I now see evidence that there's not. And now these things that I was upset about maybe in my life, but that I was told I was being sort of crazy and infantile and performative for being upset about, no, these are real. So in some ways, there's a way in which I want to acknowledge that there's something crucial about watching those powerful white women experience sexism in a way that opened other white women's eyes to this. But at the same time, there's no way to acknowledge that without also saying, hold up, (laughs) why were white women immune to caring if it wasn't happening to people who looked like them? And how much are we thinking about the structural inequities that prevent the women of color from being the candidate, the inevitable candidate for president? You show me the black woman who is ever going to be the inevitable candidate for president so far in our history. You show me the black woman who is going to have her tale of sexual harassment treated with the same kind of concern that Gwyneth Paltrow or Angelina Jolie's is, right? And that is in no way to diminish the reality of what those women told, what those women shed light on in telling their stories of assault or abuse. We can still see it in the way that sexual harassment is covered. How are women who are in many senses most vulnerable to harassment and assault, who are the women who have less economic power, how are they ever going to be able to tell their stories without risking their jobs when it's not that they're multi-million dollar actors, when they are working at McDonald's? And in fact, we see this week the McDonald's strikers are, are striking because of sexual harassment. But these kinds of, that's not getting anywhere near the coverage as Les Moonves. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be covering Les Moonves. It means that what we still have to do, and I think that the challenge in front of white women who have just recently been awoken to a lot of this, is understanding that their anger is connected to the McDonald's workers. And you saw that happen kind of in Hollywood, because they had attained enough power to acknowledge and feel comfortable using that to build a sisterhood, right, on this. Look, I don't want to be overly optimistic about these kinds of connections, but I do think we're in a period in which there has been tremendous education about the interconnectedness of struggle, and and the Hollywood Time's Up movement is a good example of this. And again, I'm not saying like, yay, we're getting it right, but the farm workers wrote in solidarity with the actresses. Yeah. And then the actresses responded in solidarity with the farm workers and set up a fund. And I don't know how it's working. I cannot speak on behalf of how this is working. But a fund that in part aims to create a financial cushion to make it easier for those with fewer resources to tell stories about harassment without having to worry that it's going to bankrupt them or that, you know, that they can pay their legal fees. That's the kind of thing is we need to think about the economic inequality that is at the heart of who gets to tell their stories and who doesn't get to tell their stories. I mean, I also think the other thing that's very fascinating, let's see how the Kavanaugh hearings play out, is that actually demonstrating anger is paying off and Mm. not hurting you. Because before you were the crazy, irrational person. And once you showed that, 
side of yourself, there was punishment. And in some ways now, we're seeing actually reward, you know, for To some extent, I would say... I would say there is a window that has opened in which there is the possibility. I don't know if reward is the right word. In some cases, if what you're aiming for when we think about, for example, Me Too, is to see the guy who harassed you or your colleagues face a repercussion, lose his job or have the stories about him heard. There's that reward. But there's still a sense that like, oh, these women are doing this in an opportunistic way because of what they're going to gain. And in fact, a lot of the women who've told their stories are also still paying prices. Like even if their harasser was exposed and maybe lost a job or faced a consequence or repercussion, those women also talk to me and there have been some stories about this, about what happens to them afterwards. Yeah, and you you often don't hear that. I guess what I mean is that it feels like justice is within reach. For so long, we saw men who were accused of sexual assault just get their position of power. There were no consequences. And now there's a little bit of fear and there's a little bit of acknowledgement in actually in their action. So I often now, when I speak at things that, you know, we're talking about like women in technology and men are in the room. Mm-hmm. And for the first time they're asking, what, what can I, like right. courage has been contagious in our movement, but now we're asking men to have courage be contagious actually in their world too. One of the things that I was gratified by in the first few days after the allegation came from Dr. Blasey Ford that she had been assaulted by Brett Kavanaugh when she was a teenager and when he was teenager. One of the things that I was gratified by is I am now so used to it immediately being up to the women in politics to do the decrying and to do the punishment. And we saw that around Al Franken, where it was women who called for him to resign. And those women have been like roundly punished. I mean, there are donors who say they'll never support Gillibrand for president, even though she was only the first to issue this call like two minutes before 20 of Franken's colleagues called for the same thing, right? But I think that there was this sense immediately after the allegation was made against Kavanaugh that, oh, well, where are the women? What are they going to do? And I was like, why are we always going to them? Where are the guys? Where are the men? But in fact, it was Jerry Nadler. It was Pat Leahy. It was, there were men who I think that call was actually heard. And some of the men, and I'm not trying to give them special cookies because they should be engaged on this, on every issue, right? I was actually mad at them for not fighting on Roe going into the Kavanaugh hearings. I was livid with the Democrats and perhaps especially with Schumer, for not making this about Roe because Roe is a wildly popular issue across the country, even in red states. But there was an unwillingness to have this fight that was going to be deeply feminized, right? And so I'm still frustrated by that. But yes, there has to be this acknowledgement that these are not just women's fights. That they're their fights too, They are their fights too. And I do think that, yes, I'm cautiously optimistic about this period in terms of there being some return on a willingness to be openly furious. I mean, there was a return, for example, on the ACA repeal. Women were the activists, you know, pressuring GOP senators to not support the repeal of the Affordable Care Act. And it turned out that Murkowski, Collins, and McCain came around. That's an actual, okay, people were mad. They said they were mad. They told their representatives they were mad. And the representatives responded. There was, that was an instance in which protest worked. We also, though, have to remember that the hangover from there not being repercussions is long. So it's just two years ago that there's an Access Hollywood tape and that a dozen women tell stories of being assaulted and harassed by Donald Trump. And 
thousands of women around the country tell stories about being harassed, a sort of proto Me Too movement that happened in the wake of the Access Hollywood tape. And I thought in that period, this is the anger of women. Let me tell you, I was over-optimistic yeah. about the anger of women. I was like, and I knew women, my friends, who in that period after the Access Hollywood tape where there was this incredibly powerful and upsetting sort of spilling out of all the stories of how many women had sustained harm via harassment and assault and predation that I had, women were turning on their cat collars on the street. I had friends who were like, I turn around on that guy and I was like, you're not allowed to do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and there was this sense like, we're in a new world. Hillary Clinton's right. going to be president and I'm pissed and I get to say it and fuck you, right? right? And I was optimistic about the power of that anger. And look what happened. The guy won. And the guy won and he's the president. And the chances are, and we're taping this before we know what's going to happen yeah. with Kavanaugh, the chances, I would say, as of today, are still 80% that Brett Kavanaugh is going to yeah. be on the Supreme Court. And if he's not, which I would, I consider a victory if he, if his nomination is derailed, not just by the assault allegation, but by the lying, by the fact that he's yeah. obviously going to overturn Roe, all of that stuff. The fact is, the guy who won is going to appoint another far-right justice who is going to get through eventually. And that justice and the court, a far-right court, is going to have power over shaping our laws and the mechanisms that govern and police us for the rest of our lifetimes. Yep. And that is going to involve disenfranchising people, keeping women from having any kind of autonomy over their bodies, fair wages, collective bargaining rights, all of those mechanisms for resistance and getting closer to equality are going to be barred from the top, and it's going to be a massive, I'm not saying give up, right? What I'm saying is we can now make out the shape of what it would mean if we rose up in in insurrection. We're seeing a glimpse of it. I still think we're not angry enough. And I think part of that is it can't just happen overnight. I mean, and I'm writing about, you know, with my book coming out about, you know, we have basically been raised to be polite and to say our please and thank yous and to not rock the boat. And it's going to take so much. We're going to have to endure so much pain, so much loss of rights, so much loss of autonomy for us to kind of shake out of that. I was on a plane when I saw the news that Kennedy was retiring from the court. And I had a full-blown panic attack on that plane. Like it was, and I don't mean that in like a cute way. Like I was shaking. I couldn't believe the whole plane wasn't shaking. Like, because it was just the thing that, there was just this moment where I was like, okay, I see the shape of the rest of my life. Yeah. I will die fighting to get back to some degree to where I was when I was born. And that, I feel there's a way in which that is very daunting and it can sound like a message of hopelessness, but I mean it as the opposite. Because what you're saying about how we still have a long way to go, we have to remember we've been living in a period in which that message that we didn't have anything to be angry about really extended over a period of several decades, I think, because there'd been so much upheaval between civil rights, the women's movement, the gay rights movement. There was this period in which all that kind of dissent really was effectively quelled on a sort of political and social level. Other periods in this country's history, and obviously still around the world, are marked by these long, lifelong, painful, furious fights to get something closer to justice. And it feels shocking to us in part because we happened to perhaps have started our lives in a period where that wasn't a thing that necessarily marked the nature of our politics. But lots of people have lived their entire lives in this struggle and 
I think that it's incumbent on all of us to look at our history yeah. and say it's okay to buckle in for a lifetime yeah. of fight. And you kind of close your book with this, right? And almost have joy with the fight, which sounds, you know, and I think immigration activists know have this feeling very much so, but I think sometimes we feel like, gosh, you know, it's not worth it. You know, it's just, it's never going to happen. They're not going to change. They're never going to give us power. And I think there needs to be a little bit of joy and bravery with the fight. I want to ask you one last question before we close, because we ask everybody's question. And I I saw glimpses of it in the book, but like, tell me, what's your brave, not perfect moment for you personally? When did you in your life, and you talk about this in your relationship with men, and wanting, you know what I mean, wanting in some ways to kind of see the best, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's okay. But when did you really kind of stop trying to, in some ways, be that good girl? Um, I have never stopped wanting to be the good girl. I notice, I think about it now all the time. I get nervous about people not liking me still. I get nervous, and I write books about anger, and I'm angry, and I yell at people, and I say that Joe Biden sucks on Twitter and I (laughs) um and then I still you know there's some part of me that's like but everybody's mad at me I don't want them to be mad at me right so like I'm not I don't want to hold myself up as any example I like I still crave approval it's a work in progress for you oh a hundred percent I do think that there was a point in my adulthood and I wish I could zero in on some satisfyingly discreet moment I think it actually came from being taken seriously professionally and not not in all quarters. There's still plenty of quarters that where I'm a hack, right? But like I think gaining some sense of not even value monetarily, but that some people were taking me seriously. And that is something that I think is key about the expression of women's anger more broadly, way beyond me and my experience. The idea that some people were taking me seriously was such a shocking thing. And whenever that sense began to set in, it, even if I'm still worried that people are going to, it's not even like me, like, I'm still worried that there are people who won't take me seriously that, you know, all that stuff that people call imposter syndrome, I have all those worries. But there was a moment where I started worrying about that stuff less. And I was like, okay, and I think that the thing that is incumbent on all of us to do is to think about how plagued so many people are by not having their thoughts and frustrations and anger particularly taken seriously by the rest of the world. I can't tell you the number of women who I interviewed for this book, and I write about it in there, who said, no one's ever asked me why I'm angry before. So the thing that I want to have happen, I don't care whether we like people who are angry. I don't want it to be likable and cute and adorable. I want us to take it seriously because part of what this exploration for me has been is how serious and fundamental women's anger has been to all of the movements, political and social, that have ever transformed this country. And that's re- and that's a lot of the history that's in this book is from abolition and suffrage and labor and civil rights and gay rights, that there have been angry women at the start and that they've basically been erased from the retelling of how those movements happened or their anger has been transformed into something else like stoicism and bravery and right. um, nonviolence. And I am determined that... I want to change the way we've, at least temporarily, (laughs) um, change the way we understand women's anger and acknowledge the degree to which it has been politically, nationally transformative and catalytic to the very struggles that have reshaped the nation and its opportunities and 
the project of perfecting the union. Women's anger has been right there the whole time, and we need to start looking at it and taking it seriously. And part of that is also looking at the women around us and saying, why are you angry? What makes you angry? Are you angry at me? And thinking about how they answer. I love it. Thank you, Rebecca. This was great. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Brave Not Perfect. Got a question for me? Send us a note at bravenotperfectpodcast at gmail.com or call in directly via the Anchor app on your phone. Until next time, this has been an episode of Brave Not Perfect with me, Reshma Sajani.